Good morning, Riga. Good afternoon, Almaty. And good evening, Suva from Washington, D.C. I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss Scotland's independence movement and Nigeria's disappearing fuel subsidy. It's all coming up. morning, John. How are you? Well, I'm doing pretty well. Thanks, Ethan. But it's been a uh, wild week for former world leaders. Yeah, yeah, it sure has. We had uh, on Monday, there was the uh, the 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 death of former Italian premier Silvio Berlusconi. Uh, President Trump arrived yesterday at a, a courthouse in Miami to face yeah. a federal indictment. <laughs> and you're in the UK where not one but two former British leaders had their names pop up in the headlines. Wait, what? Two? What's, who's the second? Well, we're talking about uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the former first minister of Scotland for, right. this, for this story. But the one that actually dominated the headlines was Boris Johnson, the former British prime minister. Oh, my goodness. You are absolutely right. Yeah. I, I You know, it's been such a, a long, crazy week that I actually forgot the news about Boris, which was only, what, last Friday or Saturday. Uh, yeah, he, re- he resigned unexpectedly in anticipation of that report uh, that will accuse him of deliberately misleading parliament, right? Um I think it was interesting. I read over the weekend that most political watchers in the UK say he'll be back. But, you know, I think, I think, uh, I know, I'm not so sure. He, he, you never count him out, but he, he's pretty on the nose these days. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch. It always is with him. But, but like I mentioned, we're talking about uh, a, a less uh, flamboyant character today, Nicola Sturgeon, <laughs> the former first minister of Scotland. So what, what brought her into the headlines? Well, I, I was actually, you alluded to it. I was actually on a flight from uh, Chicago to London when this story dropped. So it was what, pretty much the first thing I saw when I when I checked my phone uh, in Heathrow. Um, and, and the story is that Nicola Sturgeon was arrested as part of uh, an ongoing inquiry into the finances of her political party, the Scottish National Part Party, or the SNP as it's known. Um, and the, the allegations, we, we don't need to get too deep into them because it, it's fairly, you know, boring. <laughs> but they're essentially that the SNP diverted around £600,000, which is about $750,000 US, um, diverted them away from uh, spending on a Scottish independence campaign um, to other purposes. Interestingly, Sturgeon's husband, the former chief executive of the SNP, and the party's former treasurer were also all arrested briefly to uh, face questioning in the case before being released without charges eventually. Um, and, and just to editorialize for a second, Ethan, a husband and wife, both in some of the most senior positions of a political party that run a country, doesn't uh, seem like the best idea to me. I mean, are we shocked that there are allegations like this? Yeah, I've been watching some House of Cards, John. Uh, <laughs> so who is Nicola Sturgeon? Yeah, it's a good question. So she, for, for, the, for those who kind of don't follow UK politics, she's a hugely successful politician or, or was up until this moment. Um, you know, she was considered at one time as the UK's second most powerful woman, um, you know, Queen Elizabeth being the first, of course. Um, she's kind of been around forever. Uh, in 1992, she became the youngest ever British parliamentary candidate um, when she was 21 years old. She lost that election and the next three, but she was finally elected to the then newly devolved Scottish Parliament in 1999 at the ripe old age of 28. Um, And she quickly climbed the ranks from there. In 2004, she became the SNP's deputy leader. 
and then became the Deputy First Minister when the SNP won the 2007 Scottish election by just one seat, I might add. Um, And she was finally promoted to be in charge of Scotland, or what's known as the First Minister of Scotland, in 2014. She served in that role until she resigned from politics in February this year. Mm. And that that resignation came as a surprise at the time, but maybe a little less surprising now. So what were her politics like? Yeah, well, she was pretty progressive politically. She, She supported gay rights and women's rights and opposed economic austerity. But I think she will always be known for her top issue, her political trademark, which is Scottish independence. Uh, Like I mentioned a second ago, she came to office for the first time in in the first session of the Scottish Parliament, which was created after a referendum uh, on devolution passed by a huge margin back in 1997. Um, That forced the British Parliament in Westminster, in London, to grant substantial political autonomy to Scotland in the form of a legislature and an executive for itself. But uh, for Sturgeon... The ultimate goal has always been, or maybe not always, but it's certainly of late, has been full and complete Scottish independence from the UK. Um, you know, back in 2014, she oversaw uh, a referendum, fairly famous referendum on Scottish independence, and that was defeated fairly handily by UK voters or pro-UK voters. Um, but she spent she spent the next nine years or the last nine years of her career uh, pushing for permission from Westminster to hold another independence referendum. But that permission hasn't yet come, as we all know. Right. Right. So between the British government's unwillingness to hold another referendum and Sturgeon's political fall from grace, where does Scottish independence stand? Yeah, that's the $200 billion question, right? Um, I I mean, we can start with the polling on this issue, which according to most polls, and and to be frank, I'm, I'm surprised by the results, but the polls say... Um, that that opinion hasn't really moved very much since the last referendum in 2014, even though while, you know, I think most Scots are pretty furious about Brexit back in 2016. uh, That doesn't, you know, obvious reasons, that doesn't mean Scots are pro-union. I even think lots of people that would vote to stay part of the UK would do so (laughs) while gritting their teeth. But I think the point is that it's really hard to say what would happen if Scotland holds another referendum. I mean, the Scottish National Party are still in power and it's right there in their name. They're pro-independence. So it's not an issue that's going to go away. Well, John, and to hear you say it, it's not at all imminent. But hypothetically, what would happen if Scotland became independent? Another $200 billion question. <laughs> well, the, f- the, first, the first issue, I think, is what it means for Scotland's economy. Um, Leaders of the Scottish National Party have promised that they'll apply for membership in the EU if they're successful in getting Scottish independence. But I think lots of economists estimate that independence would be really damaging for Scotland's economy, regardless of whether it's uh, a member of the EU, because trade with the UK would probably still slow considerably. Look, I want to make sure that, you know, I don't just kind of paint one-sided picture because there are still plenty of economists who say that the impact on the economy and the warnings are overblown. But I think what we can say with with certainty is that no one is certain about what will happen. Um, And if you're concerned about the economy, this is probably not a great thing. Um, But for the UK in general, uh, the question is probably even more existential than that, I think. Uh, You know, for, for those of us who watch The Diplomat on Netflix, which is everyone, I assume, Um, you'll know that the show imagines a scenario in which Scotland's push for independence is then followed by Northern Irish and Welsh independence. And and that's not crazy. It's unlikely, of course, but it's not an unthinkable scenario. So it is existential. Westminster will want to do everything it can do to convince constituents outside England 
that the union, that Great Britain is still a good thing. Um, but, you know, considering that the UK economy hasn't grown since 2007 and it's technically the worst economy in the G7 right now, it's, uh, it's getting increasingly hard to make that case, I think. Today's show is sponsored by Flavier. Flavier helps you curate your home bar with the classic, the crafty, and the rare gem spirits that match your personal taste. You can sample and train your palate with themed tasting sets, which are guaranteed to help you find your new favorites. Flavier is the best way to experience the spirit of exploration. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So we're off to West Africa for this next one. Indeed we are, Ethan. And uh, we're off to welcome a new president in Africa's largest economy and its most populous country. Um, the story here is that uh, last month on the 29th of May, Nigeria inaugurated their new president, Bola Tinubu. Um, and we've talked about Tinubu before. He's been in politics for over 30 years and he started out as a Nigerian senator. He then became the governor of Nigeria's most populous state, Lagos State, which is where Lagos, the the, the massive city is. Um, and then he served as an apparatchik in the ruling All Progressive Congress. And uh, I actually just forgot how much I love the word apparatchik. So thank you for making me say that there, <laughs> Ethan. I appreciate it. Regular <laughs> listeners might start to hear me working it in uh, a lot more. But anyway, <laughs> despite his prominence in uh, Nigerian politics uh, and repeated warnings on the campaign trail, lot, lots of Nigerians, I think, were quite surprised last week when President Tanubi made a sudden announcement during his inauguration address that he would go ahead and end Nigeria's fuel subsidy on the 1st of July. Uh, I'm sure you're not uh, shocked to hear, Ethan, that a national fuel subsidy was pretty popular. Sounds pretty good to me. But what was this uh, fuel subsidy all about? (laughs) Well, the fuel subsidy was introduced back way back in the 1970s by the then military regime that ruled Nigeria uh, to keep petrol prices low while the world was struggling through the Arab oil embargo. Then in uh, 1977, it was, uh, the regime formalized the program and made it law. Um, And it's been artificially driving down gas prices in Nigeria ever since then. Problem is, last year, the subsidies cost the government $10 billion, much of which had to be borrowed. Um, And the program has been the source of endless corruption. Uh, one report uh, I read from the year, uh, back in the year 2013 suggested that Nigeria has lost uh, about $400 billion to corruption since um, the country's independence back in 1960. And I think a good portion of that can be linked to this fuel subsidy program. Uh, plus, you know, econom- uh, economists say that you know, subsidies are just bad economics and, and that limits the sort of innovation in the petroleum industry that could make the subsidy obsolete in Nigeria. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a big move all around. Has anyone ever tried to end it? Yeah, even as recently as 2012 when President Goodluck Jonathan, which without doubt the best name in world yeah, politics. No, we should pause there. We should just let everyone appreciate that. <laughs> yes, good luck, Jonathan. Well, yeah, he tried He tried to end it, um, but he was forced to backtrack after petrol prices shot up 120% and led to a spate of nationwide protests that turned deadly. Um, and forgive me here, but you might say that he did not end up living up to his name. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I apologize. Yeah, you, you beat me to it. I mean, good luck, Jonathan. <laughs> good luck, Bola Tanubu. I mean, is he really going to go through with it this time? <laughs> 
Yeah, it, it seems so. Uh, he's even outlined everything he wants to do with the money he's saved from the subsidy. So, you know, when you spend when you send, spend money you haven't saved yet, you kind of have to go through with it. Um, you know, he's, he's looking to increase spending on, on good things, it has to be noted, like public transport, education and healthcare. And he's convinced that a, a new oil refinery in Lagos, which actually opened back in late May, uh, and is now the largest oil refinery in Africa. He's convinced that that can start to alleviate some of the short-term pain Nigerians are feeling uh, when it bring well by bringing six hundred thousand barrels of oil to market um, every day. Um, you know that's enough oil that the refinery's owner has said around forty percent of that could be exported. Um, but on the other hand, gas prices have shot up three hundred percent since he had made that announcement to end the fuel subsidies. So there'll be you know a big and fairly justified public outcry against it, right? Look, I think Nigeria has a lot going for it in theory. It's Africa's most populous country. It's a young country with a growing labor market. And and until recently, it was the continent's biggest oil producer. It was actually knocked off top spot by Angola very recently. Um, And analysts or some analysts blamed theft for the decline in that Mm. production, which I think adds weight to our point about corruption earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, corruption and theft are are, are huge problems, especially in uh, resource-rich developing economies. But John, I mean- editorialize here for us. What's the bottom line? What do you think about this? Well, if you've given me permission to tell you what I think, Ethan, uh, populist policies (laughs) like fuel subsidies are just that. They're popular um, by definition. Uh, And that's because they introduce these sugar highs into the economy and and coming down from those is never fun. You should just ask your colleagues four hours after you've mainlined some uh, gummy worms there, Ethan, to know (laughs) that. (laughs) But um, no, more seriously, I'm optimistic about Nigeria. This, this, This kind of policy seems to be sound economic thinking. Notwithstanding the very real pain, I think it's important to mention that it will cause very real pain to some Nigerians in the short term. But with some smart economic management uh, and with some political courage to reduce corruption, it could well be the start of a hugely exciting story for Nigeria and and for Africa as a whole. Thank you for that, John. I I feel invigorated. There you go. And end it on a good note. Thanks, mate. Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. Nine people, including four police officers, were killed during a shootout at a police station in central Vietnam. At least 26 people have been arrested in connection to the events, which investigators are linking to a feud over land rights in Vietnam's coffee-growing region. Honduras opened an embassy in China on Sunday, months after severing ties with Taiwan and switching diplomatic recognition to Beijing. China is considering awarding Honduras's decision by negotiating a free trade agreement, according to Chinese President Xi Jinping. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, have you ever looked at a map of West Africa and wondered how the Gambia, that tiny little strip of land surrounded on three sides by Senegal, managed to stay independent? I sure have. But it turns out the two countries have a more complicated relationship than you might expect. Check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see why. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.